Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Michael McKee, what a joy. I loved what you did with Neil Kashkari uh, here in the last number of days. And now you've got the wonderful mathematician from Cleveland, Loretta Mester. Yes, Tom, we do. Uh, we'd like to welcome the Cleveland Fed Bank president, Loretta Mester, to Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. Thank you for joining us on this beautiful morning, at least here in Boston. Uh, looks like uh, the narrative... Uh, President Mester, that the American people are going to be recovering more quickly than everybody anticipated might not be correct. I mean, they're still spending money, but not at an increasing pace. Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably what we should expect, right? We have pent-up demand coming back as vaccinations have been distributed more widely, and that's a strong demand. We also have supply issues affecting the economy, and this interplay between Demand and supply is what we're seeing in some of the data coming out, whether it be today's retail sales report or the labor market report. So the volatility month to month, I think, is something we should expect. I think that what's happening, though, is that we do see the recovery continuing. It's just that we're going to have these month to month changes depending on which factors are more dominant. Is it the supply side or is it demand side? And I think the bottom line is it just, you know, we're really at the beginning of this vaccinations, widely distributed part of the recovery. And I think we just have to, you know, wait and be a little bit patient and let the, the recovery continue. Well, we just got the uh, CDC advice that people don't have to wear masks anymore. I can tell you people in Boston are still wearing masks as they are in New York. Uh, do you think that reluctance to go out and spend is going to fade rapidly now? Well, it's hard to see how rapidly. I mean, I myself, you know, I'm still, you know, wearing masks when I go outside. I think it all is a good sign, though, that we are getting to the other side of this. And I think that the vaccinations still have some further way to go. I think we need to distribute them more evenly across um, the country. But as, as a, that continues, as we can relax mask wearing for those who have been vaccinated, all of that is on a good path to get us back to some semblance of normal. And I do think people are going to feel more comfortable re-engaging. I, I am feeling more comfortable re-engaging, and I think I'm representative of others that you know we have a reluctance but now as things continue on and you know we've intellectualized the fact that we have gotten vaccinated and we are protected we're going to be more able and willing to go out and re-engage and i think we're going to see that you know over the rest of the year well, this is where I put in my plug to come visit you in Cleveland and do the next interview there. Uh, neither you or I have had a real chance to dig into these retail sales numbers, but the interesting thing about retail sales is they're reported in dollar terms. And so one would have thought that there would be a big impact from the April CPI numbers. Uh, what was your reaction to that and the idea that maybe inflation is accelerating more quickly than the Fed anticipated? Well, again, I think we're seeing the clash between, you know, pent up demand, the surge in demand and some of the supply issues that we're seeing and coupled on, you know, with that also is the fact that the month, you know, year over year numbers are really incorporating those very low inflation readings we had 
um, last year. As those, you know, come out of the numbers, we're going to just see mathematically inflation going up. But no doubt, you know, we're seeing some real supply constraints in particular areas. I think you were mentioning lumber earlier. There's commodity prices. There's energy prices now with the pipeline issue. So you're, we're seeing those in the inflation data. I think the real question for monetary policy is, is that going to you know abate over the rest of the year as supply comes back on, as some of the stimulus um, checks that people have um, are used up? And so I think we're going to see that play out. And my baseline scenario for inflation is that we're going to have high, higher inflation this year, above 2%. But then as some of those constraints on supply ease, um, I think we're going to see inflation go back down and we'll have to you know, monitor that as we go forward. I'm really focused on inflation expectations because I think that is really where you know, you'll begin to see if those go up um, and they're going up a little bit now, we'll have to look to see whether longer run expectations are going up. And that's really a, a key to me in terms of you know, where inflation is likely to go um, over the longer run. Uh, Wall Street's favorite drinking game is uh, the word transitory with Fed officials. How do you define transitory? How long is it? When would you know whether you're right or wrong about your inflation forecast? Right. So again, I think transitory is a word that was meant to convey whether those are supply issues that will abate over time and that's what's push, pushing up prices or whether it really is in these underlying inflation measures. So far, we don't see right, much impact on measures like the Cleveland Fed's median CPI and other measures that really try to look at what the trend in inflation is. And the key to that is this real inflation expectation. So it really is gonna depend on how long it takes for supply conditions to to ease and get back to normal. And that could take some time. It's gonna depend on what commodity we're looking at. It's gonna depend on what part of the economy we're looking at. You know, we all have talked about the chip, you know, shortage. That's gonna take some time. When we talk to our um, contacts in the auto industries, many of them are saying it's gonna be six months to even nine months for that to get back to normal. So some of those transitory gives the impression of over and done very quickly. I don't think that's what we'll see, I think some of those are gonna last longer, but whether that gets embedded in underlying inflation rates, which is what the Fed looks at, that's a different story. And that, in that sense, I think a lot of the supply conditions that are pushing up inflation now will abate over time. Well, there's definitely going to be a staring contest between the Federal Reserve and the people on trading desks on Wall Street over the next couple of months as we get this economic data. Uh, are you going to be able to resist pressure from the markets if they see uh, concern about inflation and start raising rates? I I'm sure you'll tell me, yes, you can. But traders also remember December of 2018. You know, we have been very clear, I hope, in um, telling everyone sort of our strategy and the fact that we want to see right it in the data we want to not just based our our policy actions on what we project is going to be happening but also seeing it really in the data and i think that's a really good strategy for times like this where you have demand and supply factors clashing and coming together and the outcomes in the data so again you know i think we're going to be looking at outcomes our forward guidance tells us, you know, tells the markets and the public where 
what we're looking at. We want to see inflation go up and we want to see it be on track to go above 2%. Um, and that's you know what we're going to be looking at and basing our infl- on the inflation side. And we want to get back to maximum employment. You know, we still are, in spite of the pretty good labor market data we've gotten over the past several months, despite last month's little bit disappointment in that report, we're still making progress on the labor market side. But right again, supply issues are affecting those numbers too. And you know we have to sort of continue on the path we're on until we get more people back into the labor market um, and more progress towards our goals. So again, well, that- I think we're seeing this play out in both labor markets and product markets. And the Fed is just going to be focused on outcomes to see that, re- you know, and recalibrate but- our our policy appropriately to the outcomes. Uh, what you're saying about the employment report. Um- do you have a read on what happened there? Do you think that uh, the enhanced unemployment benefits play a major role as uh, a lot of uh, at least politicians think? So I think a lot of things that are going on in the labor market still reflect some unease that we were talking about earlier in terms of re-engaging. And I also believe that, the and we hear this from our contacts all the time, the childcare school reopening, that is affecting the labor markets. I think people are making decisions based on those things, but the fact that they have the unemployment benefits gives them the the financial wherewithal to actually be making those decisions. Whereas in the past, they may not have been able to make the the decision they would like to be able to make because they didn't have the wherewithal. So in that sense, it's interacting. But I think the main drivers are these other considerations in terms of the virus and schools. And that's why I think we're gonna see some of that downward pressure on labor supply abate too over time, because I think as schools reopen, as people get more comfortable with the vaccinations being widely distributed, I think people will feel more comfortable coming back into the labor market. And we're gonna be watching for that. I certainly will be watching for that um, as we go through the rest of the year. Let me ask you this. Uh, A number of people, including your former colleague, Bill Dudley, the former president of the New York Fed, have been speculating lately that the economy could rebound more quickly and more strongly than people anticipated. And that by the time you get around to looking at actual realized data, you will have passed uh, maximum employment and the inflation danger will rise. And then you're going to have to raise rates farther and faster than you thought. Uh, What's your view on that? So I think, you know, we are going to be watching very closely how the economy and the recovery evolves over the year um, as we get more data in. So and we're guided by our our dual mandate goals, progress towards those goals. So, yes, there's, you know, uncertainty around the outlook. There's risk around the outlook. Things could, you know, pick up faster than we anticipate. Things could go slower than we anticipate. And we're prepared for that. I think we're in a good place right now with our policy and we're gonna adjust it as appropriate depending on how the actual recovery um, progresses. So that's why this is you know, not the time to really be adjusting anything on policy. It really is a time for watchful waiting, seeing how the recovery evolves, seeing how some of the supply constraints dissipate or not, seeing what happens on the labor side um, and keeping focused on our dual mandate goals. So. You know, I understand where Bill's coming from. I think the way I would, what would I would say in response is we're, we're well positioned now 
for upside and downside risks. And we're just going to have to be patient where we are now and wait a bit, li little bit longer looking at the data to see where this recovery is going. But I'm very, I have a positive outlook. I'm, I think the outlook is bright. I just think that we need to let it continue on a little bit longer um, because, you know, opening up the economy after such a deep, deep uh, shock downward, right, is proving to be, you know, there's some, some stumbles along the way. And I think we should have expected mm -hmm. that. And I think that's what we're seeing in the data right now. Well, let me ask you one last quick question. Do you think it's a foregone conclusion that when you finally talk about or talk about, talk about uh, tapering, that you're going to get a taper tantrum, that the markets are going to try to reprice immediately and we're going to have a market disruption? Well, I mean, obviously that would not be a good outcome. I think we've been very clear and Chair Powell's been very clear that we are going to be communicating well in advance um, what our policy stance is is, and where it's going. And I, my hope is that um, we'll be articulate enough um, and explain enough our rationales and, and our um, expectations that we will avoid the worst um, in, in terms of the financial markets. I mean, volatility in financial markets is what financial markets are. Um, we just want to make sure that, you know, we're communicating as best we can our rationales and our approach to policy and you know we'll just have to wait and see how how well we do that loretta mester the president of the federal reserve bank of cleveland thank you very much for joining us this morning here on bloomberg radio and television worldwide mike always Wilson. great fantastic sir michael mckee there with president mester always great to hear from president mester as well Let me get on to our next guest, because she is very valuable. There are economists that come on here, and they warble gaily, and there are very few, like think John Taylor of Stanford University, who actually have a Bloomberg function. Claudia Sum is one of our great thinkers, and she nailed the recession mathematics a number of years ago at the Fed. And there is the Sum rule, which you can find on the Bloomberg, which shows a horrific recession of this instant pandemic, and then out we came to a better America. Except Claudia Sum has said, wait a minute, the inequality that out there is tangible. Claudia, I want to get to the inequalities right now, and I want to get to what I'll say from John Edwards is three Americas. You got an elite boom. You got McDonald's and the rest of them telling us Amazon, they're going to hire low wage at a higher wage. And then there's the rest of America. How do we pull them into the dialogue? Right. Well, this is absolutely the right question to be asking right now because we have not in the past done a good job policymakers getting a recovery for everyone. Up to this point, we've seen a lot of messaging. We've seen a lot of actions by Congress with the rescue plan, the Fed with their new framework to say we're going to fight for those people to get everybody back, particularly those from minoritized groups. But like we got to see it. And what you see right now are the other two groups, the elite, the wealthy and the large corporations making a lot of noise that they need to be taken care of and not those at the bottom. Claudia, within the three Americas, there's the idea of, yeah, we get back. We're going to be fully employed, fully employed, 4% unemployment rate, whatever the number is. 
That math doesn't compute. If we have so many people left aside because of technology, because of education in the last 20 or 30 years, what's the program to actually pull them from a modern welfare state, however you want to call it, into an actual productivity for America? Right. Well, our people are our most valuable asset, the thing that we should be investing in. And that's where, and our infrastructure, right? So physical infrastructure, invest in our people. We have two proposals going to Congress in varying forms. Like there's so much we can do in terms of investing in people and families in the next generation and our physical infrastructure. Those are the kind of things we need to do now. Like we have to fight this recession, but it is not good enough to get back to pre-COVID. Because pre-COVID, there were a lot of problems. And frankly, our productivity as a country had slowed down. I mean, we were all suffering, and some were suffering even more. And we can fix that with good policy and a lot of push from markets, too. I mean, the private sector has a big role to play also. Claudia, the complexity of productivity, and I really try, Claudia, on a Friday (laughs) not to talk about productivity, but I'll dive off the deep end here. On productivity, it is about this strange MIT solo word, technology. Are we less productive because we're overwhelmed by not the the negative, but just the realities of our modern technology? So I don't want to point paint that dark of a picture. I I will say, you know, productivity is the sum of what we do not know, right? It is very hard to measure. It's very hard uh, to really say where we're at and why it's slowed down. But we do know that education, helping workers have stable lives, economic security, job ladders, right? Like it's not, even if we can't see it in the GDP data, like that's real, that matters to people. So I don't want to, like, technology's always been with us. Automation's always been with us. That's mm. not an excuse to throw in the towel here. Claudia, you're every Republican leader's worst nightmare. They won't, they won't <laughs> talk to you. They hang up the phone. They call, hello, the Jane Family Institute, but we don't want to talk to that wacko economist, Sam. Okay, but are the people of the Republican Party in sync with their leaders, or do you buy what's percolating in Washington that President Biden can get societal support of Republicans, even if he doesn't get the leadership support? Yeah, well, I will say I talk to Republican voters every day, that being my parents. Really? Uh, so, wow. yeah, no, I grew up in Indiana. I'm not a political person. I do think we need to have policy and an economy that works for everyone. But frankly, that is not like that's what everybody wants in the United States. There are big debates about how to do it best and what the role of government versus the <clears> role of individuals are. But I think this is one where we, the, the <clears> politics that are just crushing work in Congress and the administration and have for decades, this is a real disservice to the American people. And I try and stay in my lane on the economics and not the politics, well, but it's 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 hard to watch. It's a break-sclusive, folks. It's a surveillance break-sclusive here this morning. Claudia Sam speaks mm-hmm. to members of the GOP. It's an extraordinary uh, moment. Claudia, I want to go back to University of Michigan, where you took your PhD. It's really been one of our hotbeds of inflation research. What is your observation on the fear, the worry, the angst, the pendulum of inflation? 
Yeah, so I feel like we all just got to step back and take a deep breath, right? There's been a way too much attention to the last set of data points, whether it's jobs or inflation or today retail sales, right? We have a $21 trillion economy. We have really tried to push it intentionally to get people back to work and back on track. This is exactly what we said was going to happen, right? Like you can't get all excited about an historic uh, forecast miss or like numbers that come in bigger than we thought because this work like the entire last year I mean remember last year they were all way worse than we had mm-hmm. expected right so I think there's just we're losing context and I get it it's scary it's uncertain but if you look at especially I look at the consumer expectations numbers I mean people they don't like inflation this is true but they will tolerate it to a moderate level like two percent three percent this is not as long as wages are rising but what is really right. really hard is not to have a job very quick right? so we yeah. have to keep it in balance i'm yeah. running out of time claudia but very quickly here is the argument of corporations that they've got to pay 16 17 an hour going to overwhelm the deep south that wants to pay seven dollars an hour so I, there's going to be a lot of adjustments in the labor market coming out of this. Again, we're a dynamic economy, and it's so different across the country. But right now, there's a lot of talk, and we just have to – I mean, these are business decisions. This is not something we can fine-tune from mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. We've got to leave it there. Claudia Sam, thank you so much with the Jane Family Institute and their senior uh, fellow today. Let's go to this right now. We are thrilled to bring you Craig Moffat, Michael Nathanson. Moffat Nathanson, of course, for decades at Sanford uh, Bernstein. They are definitive on what we do in our houses and what we watch and when we watch it. Michael Nathanson, let me go to you first on Disney. I know John's got a bunch of questions, uh, too. To me, it was just simply they didn't have Mandalorian 2. How much did Disney and Mr. Chapek miss Baby Grogu? (laughs) They missed by about five to six million subs. And in the new Disney, that really matters. So, it, you know, it's perverse, but they crushed every other number, but Disney Plus subs. And unfortunately, that's what happens when the stock trades the way it does. I mean, it's the way it is, and it's a battle out there. Craig Moffat, you've been doing this years, particularly the cabling of it, the routing of it, and what we do with our checks. What's the theme for you, Craig Moffat, right now into the summer in the streaming wars? Well, you know, as much as the streaming wars um, dominate the the video side of it, the companies that I cover, especially AT&T and Verizon, you can talk about media for them if you want, but fundamentally it's about, it, it's about the wireless business. And um, while streaming is sort of a, a benefit that they give away for free, the real battle is going to be on, on networks, capital investment, and 5G. You mentioned capital investment. I don't need enough. We don't have time now for a, a, a treatment on Verizon. But are, are the traditional companies, Craig Moffat, that you follow, done pretending that they can be the companies that Michael Nathanson follows? Not entirely. Um, AT and T's making a good go of it for for HBO Max, for example. You know, the problem is all of HBO combined is less than 4% of AT&T. So Brilliant. while it's a good story, fundamentally, it's, it's, it's got to be about other businesses for them. Michael, I'm just trying to work out why the Walt Disney Company's done nothing all year. The stock has done absolutely nothing after a huge move into year end. Well, John, we had those two huge moves, and it went to a level that you had to do all this fancy math, some of the parts, price to sales multiples, to justify where it was. And 
everyone had a chance to buy it after the investor day. They did. And there was not, you know, there were not buyers at that level. And you're right. It's, you know, we were neutral on the stock. We thought it had overshot valuation. And now we think it's going to grind lower and there'll be some point we become constructive on it. But we've had a hard time looking at things, some of the parts, right? We are earnings and cash flow analysts. And we thought, look, let's just wait for a better entry point, which I think is going to happen. Well, let's talk about what drives that better entry point, Michael. What do you think it is? What's the catalyst for a move lower from here? Well, I think it's some of the air coming out of the valuation on, on, on Disney Plus, right? The people were using 10 times revenues on 2025 to get to a Disney Plus number, right? So I think you, Disney Plus has been a great story, but one third of the subscriber base has come from India with an ARPU of less than a dollar, mm-hmm. right? So you need, to, you need to be cautious on how quickly you want to give it a Netflix status on valuation. And that's been our point. So I think it's just more focus on, you know, what's the valuation right. of Disney Plus? It's been a great story, but it's probably not worth $200 billion today. The problem with you guys is we spend all our time, our love with Michael Nathans is because it's romantic to talk about Disney and all that. Craig, you get no love. I'm going to Craig Moffat right now, folks, on the boredom of my cell phone bill, T-Mobile <laughs> and all that. The biggest unsaid success, Craig Moffat, in decades has been Legere and T-Mobile. Does T-Mobile continue to crush American cell phone competitors? Yes. Uh, flat answer, yes. Um, you know, we think about it. This is a company that has been priced 16% below AT&T and Verizon in their consumer prices for, for cell phone service for years, in large part because their network wasn't as good. Now we're going into the 5G cycle where not only are they cheaper, but they're going to have the best network of any of the three of them. And those kind of worst to first stories are very rare in American business. And when you find them, they're really exciting. Do they sustain that? Can they stay first? I mean, you look at T-Mobile as a premium and sustainable cash flow. Yeah, because I mean, telecom cycles are not one and two years long. You don't build a network in a couple of years and then somebody passes you a year or so later. These are 10 and 20 year cycles. And so we're going into the 5G cycle. It's going to last well more than a decade. Um, where T-Mobile takes a, a sustainable early advantage and likely holds it for a decade. So, you know, and they're 10 years into this cycle already, and they've got another 10 years in front of them. You know, Michael Nathanson, I got to bring it back to you. I guess everybody's still chasing Netflix. They had the huge success, right. Mank, the Oscars, and they had Queen's Gambit and the rest of it. What's their pipeline look like? And are they still wedded to the pipeline to keep Paramount Plus and Disney and the rest of them away? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. They've hit a, a dry patch as everyone has just because of the pandemic. But they're going to come back with a ton of content in the second half of this year. And they put a lot of emphasis on big movies. So you're going to see some major blockbusters coming from them that you would have thought were you know, theatrical releases that will be on Netflix. So there's a bit of a temporary pause. Um, we think towards you get to the fall, you start seeing that, you know, what you described as those previous hits coming back. But you have a period now where you know, HBO Max is probably going to take a lot more share just because they have theatrical release movies that are going on HBO Max day and day. So we have a bit of a slow period before I think it heats up again you know, in the fourth quarter. Michael, I wonder whether we're reaching that point where people look around at the cost of all these streaming businesses and just say, I'm not doing this anymore. £15 here, £20 there, £10 here, $10, $15, wherever you might live. 
Michael, right. and they just say, no more, I'm done. Because we've been talking about competition, and I noticed the Netflix miss, big miss. The Walt Disney subscribers <clears throat> miss, big miss. Is something brewing here? Yes, John, and we think this is what, what's brewing here is you had a year of a major pull forward, right? When we've been doing this, we're doing this from Zoom. Past 12 months, if you've been stuck at home, you're streaming, you're not doing anything else but streaming. Thank God we're getting out of our house. When, when the world opens up, I think people will look at their bills and reassess. So we have a thesis that, you know, we think streaming wars will pick up, but also streaming consumer adoption will slow the next couple of quarters. So, you know, we've not recommended Netflix and Disney. Uh, those are great trades last year. So we're more, we're most, we're more cyclical, you know, advertising based names as the economy strengthens. And that's, that's been the call. We think it's the right call, but your, your point is right. As consumers change their, their spending behavior, some of those streaming services will see either higher churn or less adoption. So you're taking me to Facebook, essentially, yep. those kind of names? Facebook, Google, those are the names, Snap. Um, although you say, hey, you know, doesn't everyone recommend them? They're still really attractive stocks given the growth outlook. Both of you jump in here. Unfortunately, I think this goes to Michael Craig. I'm sorry for that. But the Super League English football uproar, what's it mean for the gajillions of dollars that's negotiated for this strange game called soccer? Well, you know, well, Tom, I, that's, I, a that's, that, that's a Craig question. So yeah, I was going to say, you know, it, the, the Premier League just renewed um, with a flat contract. Um, it, in fact, they didn't even open it up to, uh, to, to bidding in the UK. Uh, so they've renewed with Sky. So it stays on. Um, and I, I think probably <laughs> that, that, as it turns out, works out well, because I don't know that they needed the extra publicity. There's a lot of animus over the whole, the, the whole Super League um, debacle and uh, it, a lot of unhappy fans that still have a bad taste in their mouth. Yeah. Craig, and I couldn't agree with you guys, more. Go on, Michael. Yeah. Ironically, although football prices in Europe are flattening, in America, the prices keep going up, right? Our market's really tied to multi-sport in a way that Europe isn't. So we keep seeing steady increases in sports costs here. Craig, we never get to talk much. I'm sorry for that. Let's <laughs> talk, just, just me I'm and Michael all the time. <laughs> it's always taking your airtime. Craig, we've got to leave it there. Craig Moffitt and Michael Nathanson of Moffitt yes, Nathanson, founding partners at Senior Research as well, analysts. This is barn on an important conversation and ever more important from what we heard from CDC yesterday. Gigi Granval is a real deal with a PhD from Johns Hopkins in T-cell receptor work. Then Catherine Zeta-Jones. It's about Zeta proteins and something called CD3 Zeta change and the rest of it. Look at the Wikipedia on T-cell receptors and you'll go, oh, she joins us now from the Center for Health Security at Johns Hopkins. Uh, Dr. Granville, I want to cut to the chase. I'm going to be in a restaurant. My mask is off. The, the place is again packed as we're all getting back to. How do I know that somebody's not vaccinated? And what does it mean within the immunology in that restaurant? Right. Yeah, you don't know that everybody is vaccinated. And by fully vaccinated, we mean two weeks after your final dose. Um, and you will, you could be exposed if community transmission is high. It's just that with your vaccine, you're able to fight that off. 
okay, you're able to fight it off, but the whole family doesn't have vaccines. Somebody under 12, maybe an infant. Are you kidding me? On a game theory basis, with all of your expertise in T-cell receptors, your work at Sloan Kettering, great. Is this actually going to work? I am not going to take my unvaccinated 11-year-old to inside a restaurant at this time. That is absolutely the case. But I have less concerns about myself and my 13-year-old, who I took uh, to get vaccinated yesterday, once he's fully vaccinated. So, yeah, I mean, people have to make decisions based on their own circumstances. It's just that it'll be safer for the people who are in the restaurant, who are working the restaurant, if yeah. they're vaccinated for sure. And it'll be uh, safer for everyone who gets, who gets a vaccine. And this is a really difficult decision for parents right now, doctor. They're trying to work out to what degree their children are at risk from this virus. Do we have better answers now? Well, I mean, children do get sick and, and people have, I mean, just not in comparison to adults. Adults have had much worse outcomes when it comes to COVID than kids. But um, if you look at the numbers, about 22 million children have gotten sick from COVID. And um, if you look at the rates of uh, hospitalization, it's worse than H1N1 flu in 2009 for kids. So it's by comparison, it's not as bad as adults, but kids do get sick. So um, they still need to take precautions and if they're 12 or over they really should be vaccinated Gigi, if they're 12 or under how long does this go on for for the children yeah. of this country and the children around the world believe me i'm i'm waiting too i think uh the everyone thinks that maybe august september that we'll start opening up to being able to vaccinate younger younger kids I mean, look, Axios just published moments ago, Mike Allen doing a great job over there. And Dr. Granville, you know, they take the spin of what we're doing with CDC and call it Liberation Day. Is it? I, I didn't find wearing a mask to be all that con inconvenient. And um, I, th I saw it as a, a way of being courteous to other people. But um, it has become, obviously, a very polarizing yeah. issue. So... Okay, let's let's go to the realities here of what we see in the hospitals as well. How will this change for the essential uh, workers, you know, still courageous in the hospitals? Yeah, so, I mean, I think it'll, hopefully, the community transmission will go down, so hopefully they will have more, uh, you know, more resources to, to attend to the patients they have. Um, I think that uh, that we need to still do more to to bring vaccine to people, there are a lot of essential workers, not in the hospital, but in other places who can't afford to take the time off to be able to get vaccinated. So we still have access issues in this country that we need to address. Doctor, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. It's good to see you. you. Dr. Gigi Grunville, we really appreciate your perspective. Johns Hopkins Center for the Health Security Senior Scholar. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.